This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, um, good afternoon. How are you doing? Doing good? Yes? All right. Well, I'm going to get started in a moment. I'm just pulling up my notes. I don't usually like to use notes, but I realize the importance is you try to quote all these things, and then people ask you, where did you get that from, and you don't remember. So I like to use notes, prefer to do things that way. Now, we're going to go to have prayer and in this module, we're going to talk about now being filled, after being filled with the Spirit individually and corporately, the Spirit led Jesus to do some things, and that's what we're going to look at in a broad stroke. So in this session, uh, this first 50 minutes, we're simply going to evaluate four threads throughout the life of Jesus. And really, there's three threads throughout the life of Jesus. The fourth one kind of is established after Jesus' life. In those threads, we're going to look at that as kind of the basis of Jesus' method of discipleship and how he sought to train the men who, being filled with the Holy Spirit, are the ones that changed the world and launched this movement that we call Christianity, where a third of the world now subscribes and worships Jesus. A third, the population of the earth. And so we want to look at that um, today. And that's where we'll kind of wrap up and then maybe take some questions depending on our time. So... Um, when am I supposed to end? 320? 320? Okay. All right. Can you give me a five-minute warning? All right. Thank you. I know I have a tendency to go over. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have been busy here and there. We've already heard hours of sermons and testimonies. We've talked and we've socialized. Very quickly, Lord, we can become weary with all the things that are going on. And it is our prayer that you would lead us, that you would teach us about Christ, the master teacher. And that you would inspire us with the understanding, with the eyes that when we look at Jesus' life today, we would see it differently. Lead us on, Lord, and speak through this man and to him, in spite of him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, there are four threads that I want to suggest to you that underline Jesus' life. Four threads. Now, for those of you who are taking notes, I'm going to give them to you. And then I'm going to go through them piece by piece. Now, in the next session, we're going to look at Matthew, the structure of the book of Matthew, as a method of how Jesus trained and prepared them. Matthew is actually very methodically set up and designed and clearly inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so I think you're going to get a lot more practical things. This one is to give you the broad strokes. So, number one, undeniable facts about Jesus' life. And I'm going to go from bottom up. Number one, Jesus lived the most dependent life ever lived. Jesus lived the most dependent life ever lived. Number two, Jesus lived the most obedient life ever lived. Number three, Jesus lived the most loving life ever lived. And as a result, number four, he lived the most powerful life ever lived. I want you to notice these four threads. As I reflect and look at the life of Jesus, and you you ever read that statement in Desire of Ages where Ellen White says, hey, you know, you should take a thoughtful hour each day on the life of Christ, especially the final scenes. How many of you guys have ever read that quote before? Yes, to take a thoughtful hour. I would encourage you, a week after you leave from GYC, each day, take an hour just to think about Jesus' life. 
And this was the result of me thinking about Jesus' life. So now, let's start off with the most dependent life. Now, first of all, let me ask you a question. Do you agree with those four things about Jesus' life? Yes or no? Did anyone live a more dependent life than Jesus? Did anyone live a more obedient life? No. Did anyone live a more loving life? A more powerful life? Now, here's the thing. I want to build a case for these four threads in the life of Jesus. But first of all, let's talk about the most dependent life. You and I know that most cultures inspire us to pursue control over our circumstances. Isn't that true? Most cultures lead you to say, why should you go to school and get an education? So you can have control over your destiny. Control over your options. We also realize that uncertainty is one of those things that's unbearable in life. For many of us, we would rather go for a weak alternative that is certain than a great alternative that is uncertain. Do you agree with that? So they say, look, here, here are your options, sister. You can either for sure come to Michigan and I will give you $100,000 if you stay for a year. But you could also come to Tunisia for five years and I might give you $10 billion at the end. Which option would you go to? How many guys said, I'll go to the second option? Now, you guys are the risk takers, you know. <laughs> you guys are the ones who are like, look, hey, if I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't. I'm just blessed by the experience, right? Okay, we probably have the same dad. <laughs> but for those who are the rest of you, I also share something with you, is there are some options I won't take, <laughs> no matter how much the risk. For example... You know, whenever my wife and I, each week we try to have like a date night where we go out, just me and her, just to spend time together. And one of the hardest things to do is to choose a place to eat. For her and I, she's a little less picky than I am. And one of the things that always comes up is, if I ate at the restaurant before, I know what they have. So you say, well, let's go to this place. But of course she'll say, we always go to this place. And then I'll say, well... You know, at least I know the food is good, right? I've eaten there, and literally, my wife can tell you, I eat the same thing for breakfast every morning. I never change. Same peanut butter granola <laughs> every morning. And when we're out, or we're about to be out, I go back to Kroger, and I pick up two other boxes. <laughs> it's like perpetually on sale. Jesus knows. So she can't use money as an excuse. Now, this is where I'm going with this. It's very hard for me to choose a restaurant and say, let's try that new Italian place. And you know what we do, right? Because we need to have control. We go online, pull up the menu. Let's see what they have. But there's no way I'm going to walk into a new Italian restaurant having not looked at their menu, I have not seen their reviews. No way. Because the uncertainty bothers me to say, what am I afraid of going wrong? I'm afraid that when I go there, either there's not going to be any vegan options or the vegan options are going to be like all, um, you know, appetizers of like asparagus and potatoes and then, you know, maybe some bread that's unlimited and they'll give you some salt and pepper and oil to kind of dip your bread in. And I'm like, what is this? Like, and it totally ruins the whole date night, you know. But the, but the reality is, is look. For most of us, we are more dependent than we like to admit. This is where the problem comes in. So we tend to focus our life around what we know we can control. And those areas of our lives that we know we have no control over, what do we do with them? Avoid. Leave this for another time. Now with Jesus, this was not the case. I want to share with you some statements, and then I'm going to go to the Bible. Because my sense is our reluctance to depend upon people also spills over to the divine. Many of us think God will do us harm by his providence. If I let God lead in my relationships in life, he might lead me to someone who's not attractive. 
That's what people say. A guy told me, you know, I read Ellen White. She's talking about character is first. You're like, Lord, character? And for many of us, the danger that God will not give us what we like, what we love, what we feel we need, it just puts us on edge. We become impatient. So here's a statement that I'd like to share with you. This is about Jesus meeting with the woman at the well in Desire of Ages. She says, the king of heaven came to this outcast soul asking a service at her hands. He who made the ocean, who controls the waters of the great deep, who opened the springs and channels of the earth, rested from his weariness at Jacob's well and was dependent upon a stranger's kindness for even the gift of a drink of water. Can you imagine? You opened up the springs and the wells of the deep. You created H2O. I designed it. And here I am, the king of heaven, dependent on the stranger's kindness for a drink of water. And you hear no complaint from Christ. Let me take you to another one. Listen to this description about Jesus at about the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The Savior had no home of his own. If you don't have a home, what are you called? Homeless. Do you know that you and I commit, worship, and follow a man who was homeless? And let one of us become homeless. You feel shame over your life, would you not? We'd be totally ashamed. And you'd be thinking, your parents would be like, you are, a, you are like the scourge of the family. How could you do this to me? I didn't teach you to at least get some kind of job. How could you end up homeless? What do you think Mary was thinking? You had a home, you had a job, you were a carpenter. Why would you quit and depend upon the kindness of others? Here's the rest of the statement. He was dependent on the hospitality of his friends and disciples. Jesus was sleeping on Peter's couch. Now, can you imagine? 2011, you leave GYC. And you're going home to your wife and you're like, Honey, we got a guest. Um, Jesus, he's the Messiah. He's God in the flesh. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He speaks and people are healed. He speaks and, and the, the storm goes silent and calm. He needs to sleep on our couch tonight. What? So cannot Mr. King of heaven and earth speak a bed in existence for himself? Are you understanding? And you go to bed and he's laying there in the bed with his wife. And his wife probably asked him, are you sure? You believe the guy sleeping on the couch outside is God. That's what you're saying. Don't you think this would be hard for his mission? Yes or no? Yes. How many of you go to ministries where the director of the ministry doesn't have a place to live? I'd love to join your ministry. No, you wouldn't. I have a family. I got bills to pay. And Christ promised none of these things in following him. Let me go on. It's one thing to be dependent on your friends, but what about the people you are discipling? <laughs> You're supposed to follow me. I'm your teacher, but I'm homeless. You imagine how many people would come to campus or arise and they find out David Asterix sleeps under a cardboard box. Would you still come? going on Jesus was about to ride into Jerusalem as a king and this is the statement she says purposing to ride into Jerusalem Jesus had sent two of his disciples to bring to him an ass and its colt at his birth the Savior was dependent upon the hospitality of strangers the manger in which he lay was a borrowed resting place now, although the cattle on a thousand hills are his, 
He is dependent on a stranger's kindness for an animal on which to enter Jerusalem as its king. Now, there's a transition that has to take place, and this is what she says. But the Son of God was surrendered to the Father's will and dependent upon His power. So utterly was Christ emptied of Himself that He made no plans for Himself. He accepted God's plans for Him and day by day the Father unfolded His plans. So should we depend upon God. That our lives may be the simple outworking of His will. Um, it's from the chapter on the entrance into Jerusalem. I don't have the page number right on me. Desire of Ages. So, should we depend upon God? That our lives... You know, one of the most common questions that young people have is, what is God's will for my life? And if you had a seminar like that, it's always packed. How do I find God's will for my life? For sure I'm going to this one. Even though you've been to ten of them before. And we still haven't found God's will. Because we haven't found the ability to be dependent. Completely dependent. I want to take you to the Bible. Let's go to John chapter 5. John, chapter 5. When you're there, you can say amen. You in John 5? All right, now, Jesus... Oh, we're going to be starting in verse 19. Now this is a passage where Christ is dialoguing with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, these kind of people, they always show up. And he says in verse 19, then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner, for the father loves the son and shows him all things. That he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Number one, Jesus says, I say to you, the son can do how much? Nothing of himself. Going on. But what he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. That means Jesus is not an original. You know, some of us are so much concerned with being original. I want to do something that's me. I want to do something that I can say, I created this. I did this. And we're looking with that Ecclesiastes mindset, is there anything new under the sun? What can I do that I can put my signature at the bottom of it? But even painters, even sculptors are doing something that God already made. You get paintings of skylines. You get paintings of, oh, look at these woods, look at these mountains. Who created those? You're not original. And all the original stuff people come up with is always a distortion of what God has made. Abstract paintings, eyes inside of the back of someone's head, and a reflection in a mirror in a window with half his face is missing and it looks like a dog. And this is supposed to be art. Son can do nothing of himself. And what he means is, he says, whatsoever he sees the Father do. Number one. In order for him to see what the Father does, he has to be watching. Yes or no? Number two, if he's going to watch what the Father does, he's watching what the Father does for what purpose? To copy what he does. He has no ideas of his own. 
So can you imagine, we, we come into a ministry and Jesus says, I'm just doing what I see the Father do. That's all I'm doing. I didn't get this of myself. I didn't make it up. I didn't create it. I'm just doing what he who sent me. Now, you know, it's interesting. There's one person Jesus talked about the most in the Gospel of John. Guess who that is? The what? The Father. And we read in our first seminar module, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. That means the relationship between Jesus and the Father is supposed to be our relationship with Jesus. Are you still with me? Yes or no? So that means, why did Christ come? Why did the Father send him? Well, let's look at what Jesus says. Go to John chapter 1, verse 18. John chapter 1, verse 18. Are you there? Yes? No? Okay, can you say amen? The Bible says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Now, this verse, when He says, no man has seen God at any time, in the New Testament, whenever you find this word God, Theos, or Theon, or Theo, or different Greek words, but it all comes from the basic Greek word, Theos. Now, in the New Testament, they did something very interesting because of this Trinitarian struggle of how do you establish that Jesus is God, equally God as the Father, but at the same token, not get them confused. So what the New Testament writers did was genius. They said, okay, and this is obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit inspired these men to say, you know what? We're going to call the Father God, Theos, is the root word, but then when we refer to Jesus, we're going to refer to him as Kyrios. And Kyrios means Lord. Because Lord, in the Old Testament, is the word that's translated from Jehovah. So when Moses said, and the guy who was called, the God who was calling him, he said, what should I tell people your name is? He said, I am that I am. That's Yahweh or Jehovah, which comes from the Greek verb kaya, C-H-A-Y-A-H, which means to be. So God is saying, I am that I am. So when you say I am, I am that. In the, in the rabbis, they, they try to break this name down. What does that mean? I am that I am. It's, is it raw existence? Is God life itself? They couldn't break it down, but that name Lord, in the Greek, the corresponding title is Kyrios. So they said, this is how we can establish that Jesus is God, but yet he is different from the Father as a person. Are you, are you still tracking with me? So as he establishes this in the New Testament, Christ, in being dependent on the Lord, he says, listen, here in John 1, I have been in the bosom of the Father. That means I've been endeared to him. So you remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? And it says that the rich man went down to, you know, Hades, and Lazarus went into the bosom of Abraham. You know, you get this rock of my soul in the bosom of Abraham. You guys never heard that song. Praise God. I hate the song. <laughs> so anyway, in the bosom of Abraham, what that is saying is that he went in to receive the promises and the inheritance of Abraham. He's receiving. He's a son of Abraham and he's endeared. So when Jesus is in the bosom of the Father, he is now this firstborn. He has this relationship where he knows the Father, he's close to him, and he is now in line to receive everything that is the Father's. He's inheriting. And Christ says, no man has seen God at any time except the Son. And to him, whom he has declared him. That means, has anybody in your neighborhood seen Jesus before? You can answer. No, not at any time. But hopefully, you have seen the Lord. And as you and I have seen the Lord, he is to be expressing his life through us. 
to declare who Christ is. This is Jesus by how I, how I deal with you when you leave the extra work behind for me. This is Jesus. Because I'm not coming for myself. You see, in John 5, when Jesus says, look, the Father has committed all things unto the Son, that they may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Always understand something. In this great controversy, this is the foundation of it all. It started in heaven, where Lucifer, and if you read this in Patriarchs and Prophets, on the fall of Lucifer and the origin of sin, I read it again, and then I understood the pain in God's heart when Lucifer fell. Because you see that here's Christ, here's the Father, Lucifer is made, and all of a sudden Lucifer starts having these struggles in his heart, and his question that he could not accept, why is Christ exalted above Lucifer? That was his issue. And here Christ did not necessarily reveal himself in the way that perhaps Lucifer would have expected. If you're God, how come you don't look like the Father? And here, Lucifer could not shake this question. And as he could not shake this question, he began to instill doubt and say, no, 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 no. You see, the wrong that Lucifer felt that he was done was that Christ was exalted above him. Does Jesus deserve equality with the Father? That was the question. And as Christ comes down, the question was, can Jesus create like the Father does? Yes, he can, because he created all things, did he not? Colossians 1. Is he as self-existent as the Father? Yes. He's the only one who has immortality. Everything the Father can do, Jesus can do. And so now when we come here, many of us, we may not say, oh, I'm not like the devil. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to chill. I'm not steal. But, but, many of us will refuse to honor the Son. We will not live a life simply to honor him. And therefore, we are exactly like Lucifer. Because that's what Lucifer was created to do, to honor Jesus. But he rejected that purpose. And in being called in discipleship, Christ says, listen, Peter, James, John, I just want you to follow me. You are to see what Jesus does and to do it. Not follow us, not follow them, not follow him. Follow me. And we are called into an audience of one. To live for one person. And the first thing we see as we follow Jesus, completely dependent life. We don't really want to be disciples. Otherwise, we'd have no problem with dependence. He does nothing of himself. If you and I would manifest the dependence of Jesus, we would find the power for Christ to live out his life through us. And all the things we complain about, all the things we're discouraged about, all the things we wish we could become, he would fulfill for his glory. Because it's about his name. Let me go forward, because I can stick on a point too long sometimes. John 17. John 17. Jesus' high priestly prayer. John 17. The Bible says... As Jesus spoke these words, are you there? All right, in verse 3. Actually, I should start in verse 2. He says, As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now, here's the thing. 
Jesus is given authority or the right. Remember, if you were here in seminar one, module one, we talked about exousia, the right. So Jesus has the right to give eternal life. Are you with me? Do you see that in verse two? Yes or no? Yes. So now Jesus has the authority to give eternal life. Notice what verse three says. It says, and this is eternal life or life eternal that they might know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent now I want you to break we got to break this down too many times we get so many texts but we don't dive into the depths of the verse we just deal with the surface meaning of the text Jesus has been given authority to give eternal life and then Jesus says eternal life is to know God and to know me so that means, if Jesus is giving eternal life, what then is he really giving? A giving a knowledge of God. Are you with me? So that means, you say, and I'm, I'm, now I have to quote Ellen White, Desire of Ages, and I don't have the page number, so forgive me. She says, I think it's in the chapter on the invitation, yes, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. She says, Heaven is a ceaseless approaching unto God through Jesus Christ. That's what heaven is. And for many of us, we're not going to heaven because we understand that when Jesus comes back a second time, his feet won't touch the ground. We're going to heaven because we know God. And we want to continue to know God. But who gives you that? Jesus. And he says, this is life eternal, that you might know God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. But who has the authority to give you that knowledge of God? Only Christ. Only Christ. And in verse 4, he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. So now notice... Again, he has the authority to give eternal life. Eternal life is to know God. Jesus gave knowledge of God. And now Jesus says, I have finished the work that you've given me to do. I have glorified you on the earth. So what was the work that Jesus was given to do? I expect you to answer. This is a seminar. This is not a sermon hour long. <laughs> what, what was the work that Jesus was given to do? According to this verse, to glorify God. The word glorify means to reveal. My job was to make you known. And I finished. So now if Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. When you are on your deathbed, how can you come to Jesus and say, I have finished the work that you gave me to do? The only way you and I can say that is, I have glorified you on the earth. And the only way that that's possible is to be completely dependent upon God. The most dependent life. Now we said the second thread is, because Jesus lived the most dependent life, he therefore by extension lived the most obedient life. Because if you're always doing what the Father wants, will you ever disobey him? Yes or no? No, I'm dependent upon God. What do you want me to do, Lord? Okay, I'll do it. In your strength, by your power, the exact way that you want it. So now, here's, here, we get, here we go again. Could Jesus have lived a perfect life without depending? Yes or no? So now here we have the fact that Jesus says, look, the same way I lived, you got to do it. So here Jesus comes back and says, look, I lived a dependent life, you got to live a dependent life. Now that we've lived a dependent life upon God, we will therefore by extension live it as an... Follow this. There is a correlation with the level of your obedience, with the depths of your dependence. The main reason why we are not victorious over certain things is because we are not dependent in those things. 
We have not mastered leaning on the everlasting arms. We have not figured out how to stop and pray and seek God. In those things. You see, the things that we're strong in, we've learned, do it God's way. Isn't that true? So that's why you say, well, you know, this guy, she's really good in Bible work. Well, what does she do? She just reads the spirit of prophecy in the Bible says, I'm just going to do it God's way. And God blesses when you do things God's way. You do things your way, you get your results. Which is, we toiled all night and caught nothing. So here we have, I'm dependent, therefore I will live the most obedient life. Let's go to Hebrews. Chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. When you're there, you can say amen. Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to start off in verse 17 for sake of time. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17. The Bible says, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, notice here, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted. Do you see that? Yes or no? So Christ was tempted, that means he was able to sin if he wanted to. Otherwise, it's not a temptation. How are you testing me on something that cannot happen? So now you have Jesus is like he's tempted, just like we are tempted, so that he's able to aid. Now, if I'm tempted in the same temptation you're tempted in, and we both fall in the temptation, can I aid you? Yes or no? I cannot, right? So you failed the driving test, I failed the driving test. How can a person who failed the driving test teach you how to pass the driving test? But we do that all the time. We apply it in so many places in life. We put people there because they're our friends, because we know them, because we have connections. And all of a sudden people are ascending to positions of instruction and leadership, not because they have experienced God's working through them, but because they just got the right connections. That's the reality of how many of us function. But when you start putting a person at the leader of a canvassing program who has actually sold books, you start putting a person training Bible workers who's actually done Bible studies and baptized people, preach an evangelistic series and teach other people to preach, then you have a recipe for success. I can actually aid you. So when Christ is saying, look, the Bible says he can aid. By assumption, we have to assume he succeeded where we have fallen. He was obedient. Let's look at Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Here again, establishing Jesus lived the most obedient life. Hebrews 4, 14. Are you there? Yes? Okay, the Bible says this. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, the Bible says Jesus, who is currently our high priest, was tempted in how many points? All points like as we are. So I want you to notice, tempted, past tense, like, similar, but not exactly the same, in all points, like as we are, present tense. Jesus has been tested. And because Jesus has been tested on the very things that you and I fail, why do we not turn to Him? 
This is natural for us to do if we're saying, look, if we got point number one, dependent life. What I see Jesus do, that I do. Period. Depend on the Lord. But then number two, if we depend upon the Lord, what's going to happen? We are going to live an obedient life. Our obedience is completely corresponded to our dependence upon God. The less and less we trust Him, the less and less we try to do things God's way, the less and less of God's results that we see. If we want that, speakers that inspire us, leaders that build us up and encourage us, friends who are on fire for God, it's always correspondent to dependence. It's not because they have anything, it's because they gave up everything. They decided to go all the way. The question is, have you? Have I? Now the question of tempted in all points like as we are, go to Matthew chapter 22 and talking about the most loving life. The most loving life. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And the Bible says, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang how much? All the law and the prophets. So I want you to understand, the law hangs upon two principles. How many? Two principles. Principle number one, love God is not the principle. Love God with all is the principle. You see, if you love God with 99% of your mind, you are breaking the first commandment in the law. You see, can you imagine you come home and God takes you aside and he says, listen, son, listen, daughter. The number one rule in this house is to love you, God with all your heart. And the only reason why that commandment would be grievous, the only reason why that commandment would be scary, is if there's no reason in your father to love him. Are you with me? See, if your dad came home and he said, look, you got to love your mom and your dad with everything. Immediately in your heart, you're, you begin to search. You start computing in the supercomputer in your head, thinking, you know what? I can't love you with all. You're dangerous. You might use me. You might exploit me. You might sometimes get a little selfish or a little too angry. And I cannot always submit to you. But if we come before God, our Heavenly Father, what can you say He has done? That this commandment would be unjust in our heavenly home. can find nothing. An obedient life is a loving life. Because at the heart of the law is to love God with all and to love your neighbor as yourself. To give those things unto your neighbor that you would want given unto you. So here Christ having lived a dependent life upon what he sees the Father do, then as he watches the Father, everything he does becomes pleasing to the Father. And what that really means by expression is, he didn't break the law. And because he didn't break the law, he lived a loving life, because that's the heart of the law, is to love God with all and love your neighbor as yourself. So now here we have, when the disciples are called... When the disciples are called to follow Jesus, 
we have an experience where you say, wait a minute. Jesus lived a dependent life. Jesus lived an obedient life. Jesus lived the most loving life. And now we can honestly say in 2011, Jesus lived the most powerful life. And can you imagine that that person who lived the most powerful life ever lived comes to you and says, follow me. You see, this, this doesn't strike you as odd. And I tell you why, because we don't apply it to spiritual things as we do in sports. You see, can you imagine Michael Jordan comes to you and says, hey, let's get on the court. And as you start jumping on the court, because in my opinion, he's the best basketball player ever. I don't care what anybody says. This is my seminar. And Michael Jordan says, Sebastian, I'm going to get on the court. We're going to run up and down the court, shoot some shots, do some things. I want you to follow me. What you see me do, you do. Immediately, I'm going to be like, <laughs> hey, Michael, first of all, you know, I'm not getting about six, eight feet off the ground. So that part of what you're doing is impossible for me to do. Are you with me? So Michael Jordan says, follow everything that I do. Or you say, you know, you come to, you know, Usain Bolt and he says, Sebastian, we're about to get on the track. We're going to run this hundred meters. Follow me. <laughs> way back. <laughs> You're running 100 meters in under 10 seconds. <laughs> Not possible for me. So you have the fastest man in the world or the best basketball player in the world, and they pull you aside and say, I want you to follow me. You'd be like, there's no possible way I can do what you do. And my fear is we have done the same thing with Jesus. There's no possible way I can do what you do. And you know how many times people rebuke us with the life of Christ. And we'll come and be like, I'm so angry. I can't believe he stole my thing. I, I can't believe she touched this. I can't believe they said that to me at church. And then a person says, Jesus was reviled, but he reviled not again. And you know what our response is? I'm not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. And then Jesus is in heaven. And I believe he looks at us like he looked at Peter when he denied him. And he says, you're supposed to be. Because you took my name. The difference between Michael Jordan and Usain Bolt and Christ is he can give you the power to do what he does if you depend the way he depends. Before Jesus called one disciple, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus called no one to follow him before he was filled. Once he was filled... In Matthew chapter 3, at the baptism, Matthew chapter 4, in verse 18 and 19, he comes to Peter and his brother, Andrew, and he says, follow me. But Jesus calls no one to be his disciple before he is filled with the Holy Spirit. The disciples, as we looked at in the first module, were commanded to go out and make disciples of how many nations? All nations. But what were they to wait for? The Holy Spirit. So now here we have men who have seen the cross, who have seen the resurrection, who visited with the risen Christ, and yet their lives are still not changed. It has no avail to know that Jesus died, to know that he rose, to know that he's in heaven, unless you have the Spirit in your life and my life. Because the Spirit makes real what Jesus has done. In my life. So you wonder why you can hear the cross a hundred times and it doesn't move you. It's because of the lack of the spirit. It didn't move the disciples either. Which, by the way, we're told in the testimonies to read of the story of the cross and to not be moved is sin. In and of itself. 
How many times have you read the story of Jesus' death and you're not moved? There's nothing in you. You can't stir up emotion. Don't try to manufacture tears. Don't try to think about the pain or the, the whips or the chains or the nails going through his hands. Trying to use that to substitute the lack of connection and impact of Jesus' work. It is only through the Spirit. Makes it real in the life. And he tells them, go make disciples, but wait first. And until the Holy Spirit comes on your life, don't go tell anyone anything about me. And I repeat again, the missionary activity and movement is far ahead of the missionary spirit. We are ahead of God. We have not waited for the spirit to come. Brothers and sisters, as an overview what enabled Jesus to live the most dependent life? He was filled with the Spirit. What enabled Jesus to live the most obedient life? He was filled with the Spirit. What enabled Jesus to be <laughs> living the most loving life? He was filled with the Spirit. And what enabled him to live the most powerful life? He was filled with the Spirit. Let me end on a story to encourage you. Matthew chapter 14. This pretty much sums up everything that I'm saying. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. The Bible says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he sent the multitudes away, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down off the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now pause. Jesus was walking on water, yes? By whose power? See if you've been listening. Jesus was walking on water by whose power? The Father's power. Peter was also walking on water, yes or no? By whose power? Jesus' power. No. By whose power was Peter walking on water? The Father's power. So I want you to notice that Jesus and Peter are working the same miracle by the same power, and yet their characters are in two different places. Is Peter theologically sound at this point? He is not. He still thinks there's going to be an earthly kingdom. Is Peter still uh, on his way to denying the Lord? Sure is. Is Peter still self-seeking and I'm the greatest? But he worked the same miracle by the same power. He wanted to do what Jesus was doing. And when he stepped out of that boat... He was working the same miracle by the same power and his character wasn't even there yet. Are you understanding what I'm saying? You are and I are worried. Can I do what Jesus does? I'm not kind enough yet. I, I haven't worked out some issues in my life. And right here in the heart of Matthew's gospel, he's saying, look, Peter wasn't there. Peter, Peter, 
Simon, Simon, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. And when you are converted, chapters later. So you and I think I can't do what Jesus does. Yes, we can. If we depend on the same power the way he depends. If we trust. The same way. I can guarantee in this room, there are people who think they cannot live a true Christian life. The way that Jesus lived his life. There's some area of Christ's life you're like, that's too much for me. I can't do that. If we would learn to be dependent. To stop being ashamed. You know how we are. We don't like to borrow money. We'd rather go without than receive something with the sticker of dependent on the back of it. People make fun of people like that. People talk about people like that. But the man you worship was homeless. And you go around telling people he's God. Better be careful when you walk by a homeless man. That was the Lord. And you worship him. Study his book and come to a conference. Generation of Youth for Christ. Christ who was sleeping on Peter's couch. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. We talked about resting in the Father's love and the importance, the importance of surrendering and depending upon God. And so I just want to ask, maybe there's someone in here who's like me, gravitates towards that which is certain. And this afternoon, we need the Lord to renew in us, if we ever had it and we lost it, or to create it for the very first time, a willingness and a desire to be completely dependent, to acknowledge and seek counsel from God in everything, and to wait on the Lord. Trust him. That's how Jesus lived the life that he lived. But we don't want dependence. You say, Lord, I, I need you to teach me that. And I need you to create that in my heart. I just ask that you stand. I need you to help me be dependent upon God. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I don't want you looking around at who's standing, who's not. This is between you and God. But this is the key to living and doing what Jesus has done. Even though we haven't arrived, we can still commit the same miracles that Jesus worked. By depending on the same power. Father in heaven, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you, Lord, for using this man who is but dust in your sight. And we ask, Father, that these threads through Jesus' life would be interwoven into our lives. That we are standing because we want you to make us dependent, Lord. To teach us how to depend upon God. What we see Jesus do, that may be what we seek to do. And we would live a life simply to honor Him in all things. That our uppermost thought would never be of self, but it would always be of Christ. Forgive us when we failed. 
And we trust, Lord, that as we learn the science of dependence upon God, it will lead us to that obedient life that we seek. It will lead us to a loving life. It will lead us to a powerful life. This is our prayer. And we trust that you will help this to be our experience. For we ask in Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.